pushing buttons and pulling triggers. This is Gun Funny. Welcome to Gun Funny, episode 147. Today I'm going to chat with Dwayne Liptek from Magpul, talk about the Supreme Court refusing to hear two-way cases, discuss the dry fire mag, and outline how Freedom Week is being used as a legal defense. I'm your host, Ava Flannell, and Dwayne, how are you doing today? Spectacular. And yourself? I'm doing well, although I do bar classes. They just opened up last week, and I think I've already done maybe seven classes, and I feel like I'm starting all over again, taking a two-month break and then going back into it and signing up for five classes in a row. That probably wasn't the best idea because I just feel like I got hit by a bus. I'm not going to (laughs) lie. And those BCAAs, yeah, they can only do so much. Aside from that, I'm actually doing pretty well. But before we get into it, I'm going to talk about Manicore Arms really quickly. So if you guys have the Tavor SAR, uh, you should check out the Arclight Pathfinder forend. It extends the forend about seven inches longer and acts as a heat shield if you use a suppressor. Additionally, it has the arc lock slots along the entire length for mounting accessories. So that's pretty cool. Go to manicorearms.com, use the code GUNFUNNY15, and that gets you 15% off. Learn the things you never knew on Deconstructing the Industry. Before we get into Magpul, what is your position at Magpul? At Magpul, I am the executive vice president, which is a fairly nebulous title. And uh, in reality, it's uh, a number two guy. I am in charge of product management, marketing, uh, legislative affairs, and things like that. A bunch of other cats and dogs on the board. And I'm the chief cook and bottle bottle washer and take the trash out on Fridays, basically. that's uh, So a lot of different things kind of rolled up in one. Very nice. And then for those who aren't familiar with Magpul, can you elaborate on what that company specializes in? Sure. We are the world's largest firearms accessory manufacturer, and we focus certainly on products designed for firearms, but we also do some other consumer products. Biggest thing is really we're design and engineering problem solving uh, kind of entity. We really, that's really what drives us. And it just so happens that uh, we're extremely passionate about the firearms industry. So that's where we apply most of our efforts. Very nice. Going back a little bit, I read that you started shooting at the age of four. You started working on guns at the age of 12. And then you began instructing at the age of 17. I think instructing in gunsmithing, correct? Yep. Yep. Absolutely. What got you into firearms at such a young age? Part of it was certainly environmental and uh, other parts probably, uh, I'm fairly certain there was something in my DNA sequence that uh, predestined me to, to something in firearms. Actually, the birthday present I got on my first birthday was a 22 rifle from my grandfather on my father's side. So I was uh, destined to be a gun owner from age one. Huh. Uh, at the age of four is when I first started shooting with my father. My father and pretty much everybody in my family, uh, gun and hunting enthusiasts, it was kind of something we did. And I just became super, super interested in it, even beyond kind of what the familial guidance had been. And at 12, I started, my father and I started, did a stock refinishing project, it was the first thing on a Model 600 Remington that had seen a lot better days. And so we did that together, and then I just got hooked and went a little crazy. And that was my everything. I was working, bagging groceries and stocking shelves and using every cent of my paycheck to buy ammo and get deeper into the firearms thing. Wow. By the time I was 17, there was an opportunity at a local shooting range that was starting up. They hired me as a gunsmith. 
and as well as a shooting instructor. I started doing that USBSA and things like that back around that time as well. And yeah. At 17 years old, do you think that people, when you were working on their guns or teaching them how to use a firearm properly, do you think that they took you as seriously because of your age? Yeah, so there's certainly some hesitation when it came initially. So it was a, there was a barrier there of, oh my gosh, really? That's what's going to go down here? <laughs> and some of it's back room. So it's, uh, you know, it's a, hey, can you fix this? What can you do? Can you solve this problem? And then it'd go into the back room with a ticket and I would solve it. And they would not really have the greatest idea that it was the 17-year-old that fixed it. But, right. Um, you know, everything from building 1911s to, you know, solving uh, extraction issues with whatever the heck happened to come in through the door. It was standard gunsmithing stuff, mounting scopes uh, all the way to building guns. Some of it super sexy and some of it just more mundane, but it was, you know, it was a pretty good gig for a 17-year-old kid. The shooting instruction part was definitely very interesting for this. Really? You're going to teach me how to do anything and then demo do and then usually they believers. Mm-hmm. Then after that, what was it that you decided to do professionally? After that, I went to school. Basically, well, I went to Penn State University, got a degree in administration of justice. This whole thing starts to get fuzzy. And so there's a lot of if-then statements. So when I was 16, I had a car accident, broke my arm, have a piece of hardware in there, a big nail that holds my humerus together in the left arm. And that was disqualifying for military service. That is what I wanted to do since I was a kid. So like eight years old, what do you want to do? I want to be a Marine sniper, uh, that kind of thing. So, uh, which got me a lot of strange looks at eight years old, but in any case, so that's, that was my dream. And it was kind of shattered at that point because they weren't allowing anybody for uh, orthopedic hardware at that point. So I looked at uh, my options and you know, I want to protect, serve and, and that kind of thing. And so I, I started looking at law enforcement and went to get a degree in administration of justice with some non-business minor stuff. And off I was to Penn State. I uh, worked for University Park PD for several years while I was attending Penn State down at the uh, main campus there. I uh, wrote a thesis on community policing, that sort of thing. Did uh, a participant as observer research with another department for a few hundred hours. And then got out and actually found the possibility that I could maybe go back and, and do the Marine Corps thing through one of the officer programs. And I was accepted, but then two weeks before I was supposed to ship, I was told basically my waiver for the, for the hardware had been denied. So I was back to square one. So I got out of that, finished. I had my degree, applied for some behind the curve to apply to a lot of uh, law enforcement positions because I hadn't done it because I was pretty sure that I was going to the Marine Corps, you know, mm -hmm. Put all my eggs in that basket as uh, kind of silly, but we learned things and on I went. I ended up being, which is kind of funny, the roadmaster and kind of assistant municipal manager for Jay Township, Pennsylvania, which is the little town I grew up in. So I was basically doing road maintenance and construction, running machineries and driving a plow truck for a couple of years until my physical expired with the Marine Corps. And I walked back into a recruiter's office one more time to give it a shot. And before you know it, I'm off to Paris Island. Wow. That's an incredible story. And it's actually pretty humbling, too, that you'd go from college to law enforcement to construction. And it just seems like you're building such a huge skill set that it's kind of preparing you for where you are now. Absolutely. And it's a path that I couldn't have written better myself if I had intentionally done it in retrospect. At the time, it may not have seemed like it uh, was, <laughs> everything was going as according to plan. Yeah. But it actually, it, it worked out extremely well. And then, so I've never served in the military, but you said that your physical, it expired. So then when you went back in, what allowed you to go and join as opposed to like, why did they approve you now as opposed to not approving uh, so, you before? 
Yeah. So with the, with regard to some of the physical accession standards for when people get in, they change over time. Medical research history of folks with those conditions in and out uh, of service uh, have you know changed over time, and so they change the requirements and the, the bar gets moved left or right. As well as, I guess it's, you know, the first two times I had physical for that, they said, well, no, it says right here, you're disqualified. And so you're disqualified. I'm like, well, there's a waiver process for a reason. And folks didn't really, weren't really that hip on granting it. But then a lot, the next time I went down, it's like, look, I can, I can crank out 20 pull-ups. I can do, you know, push-ups for days. It's like, this does not affect me whatsoever. And mm-hmm. that, that doc was like, uh, he was all on board with that. And then that's when I got a waiver for that accession standard. It certainly didn't affect my performance uh, once in. Very nice. Then you went for both infantry and fighter pilot. How did you, how did you make that transition? So I always wanted to be a doer, right? And it's the, my, the whole focus of everything I wanted to do is I wanted to be the guy doing the stuff, not real hip on sitting on the sidelines. So the leadership was a big thing. The idea of an enlisted career actually appealed to me. And from, you know, even though I had the option to go officer at the time. So I went, I enlisted 0311. Congratulations. You made it. I uh, went to 29 Palms with uh, 17 Suicide Charlie, uh, second platoon, Iran, and I went uh, and that's what I did. So I was doing the 0311 thing, and I liked it. There were some frustrations, however. You know, I was 24 years old at the time, or 25 years old at the time. I was a lance corporal and was running a squad basically because I was super into learning my job and, and doing things, and I had some leadership skills because I had, was running a crew of like you know, 10 guys basically before I joined enlisted in the Marine Corps. Mm-hmm. And so it, it came down to a disagreement between, uh, you know, my first sergeant at the time said that there's no way I was going to be allowed to be meritoriously promoted to corporal until I had two years in the fleet. And so my officer package, I was kind of forced, talked into putting in an officer package while I was on Paris Island, which helped my life immensely. Drill instructors took, uh, you know, some very dim views on that, but mm-hmm. uh, it, was, it was entertaining. But uh, I was being harassed by my serious commander on a daily basis until I put that package in. Anyway, I put the package in. It came back after I'd been in the fleet for not for less than a year. And based on the fact that my advancement was kind of stalled at that point, and I felt I needed a bigger box or that I could be doing more for the Marine Corps, I said, you know what? I'm going to do this officer thing. And so then off I went to OCS, did OCS TBS. And, you know, I had I'd gone there with the intent of uh, going back to the infantry. And as I'm going through TBS and the whole thing, I was taking a look at this aviation thing. And I was aviation qualified. I'd taken the ASTB just to make my, my package as appealing as possible, mm-hmm. which is the, the standardized test battery that says, yep, yeah, you, you have what it takes to be a pilot or potentially have what it takes to be a pilot or not. So I'd, I'd done that and done exceptionally well on it. And so I had that option as I was going through TBS. And it never really seemed like it made sense to me until I took a look at, you know, hey, you know, if I actually do that as an officer, I get, the, you know, there's the leadership side, but I also have the capability to be a warfighter all the way up until I'm lieutenant colonel. You know, I'm the guy doing things now. And it's like, it's kind of the best of both worlds. So uh, we were also in, you know, 99 and the, the only engagements we had been in were kind of Bosnia and, you know, Northern Watch, Southern Watch. And it's like, wow, you know, it's, you also have a much higher percentage of chance to be employed, you know, based on my limited understanding of of the, the global scheme of what folks were doing. Certainly specialized units were doing a lot more than that. But in any case, that's, uh, that's what ta- kind of talked me into being a, a fighter pilot. I'd never wanted to fly. It was never a, you know, it's not you know, kids grow up with a lifelong dream of being a pilot. It's like, like well, I can fly something and it's got guns. Mm-hmm. I can fight. All right, I'm going to do that. <laughs> and so off I go into, into flight school and that worked out. From there, I go and I do the whole aviation thing. 
managed to get Jets. From Jets, I managed to get F-18s, which was exactly what I wanted. Go to Virginia Beach, do the rag and the Hornet. And, you know, then, you know, the other side of things is while I'm in intermediate Jets in Meridian, Mississippi, taking a, a written test, you know, 9-11 happens, right? And so mm-hmm. now we're in the full-on ground war and I'm stuck in flight school. It's like, oh gosh, I got to get the heck done with flight school. Mm-hmm. Bottom line, I hit the fleet in uh, late 2003, early 2004. 2005, we were on our way to Iraq with the MFAAW 224, 2C Hornet Squadron. Uh, we're over there for about seven months. Did some great work over there, 112 combat missions or something like that. Came back from that, and now the squadron was looking at a UDP deployment to Japan. I was like, oh, there's a war still going on. There's got to be, you know, I hate to go sit in Japan to do that. Not that that's not useful. Yeah. So a friend of mine had, uh, a couple of friends of mine had done the forward air controller thing previous to me with some certain specialized units and there were some opportunities. Hey, we're standing this MARSOC thing up and we need the first, you know, FAC uh, to, to do this thing as we stand up the first MSOC, the actual deploying unit. So I ended up uh, kind of auditioning for that billet and after a few meetings and such, next thing you know, I'm headed out to Camp Lejeune and I check in there and I do the MARSOC thing for almost three years. Wow. Couple and, trips to Afghanistan. Yeah, that's incredible. And then, at what point did you decide to leave that and pursue other things? After that, so I, I did my my time in Marsoc there. I was about to turn into a pumpkin, as far as uh, you know. If you're out of the cockpit for three years, you pretty much have to get back start all over again. So mm-hmm. they had sent me back to the Rag to uh, do my refresh, which is the you know, Fleet Crisis Squadron, where you kind of bone up on what you forgot over the past two and a half years. I went back to a flying billet, did a deployment to Japan at this point, finally caught up with me. And then coming back, was back out on a routine maintenance test flight, and my jet caught on fire, but a dual engine fire, which is pretty rare. And uh, we ended up sticking with it for nine minutes, trying to put them out, which was unsuccessful, and it ejected over the Atlantic. Wow. In that ejection, broke my back, and that kind of you know changes your qualification to be in an ejection seat aircraft. And so it was kind of like some writing on the wall. I could wait around for a year and then try and waver to get back in the cockpit. I wasn't in some great shape to be throwing a you know 120 pound ruck on my back again anymore at that time. Certainly, yeah, it's gotten better. But in any case, I had to figure out what I was going to do with the rest of my life and what I wanted to be when I grew up at that point, which is a strange thing to be in at that point. So I was I was actually sitting in bed, kind of recovering from some stuff, and I was ordering some scope mounts off brown owls. I'm like, you know what? This this may be it. Maybe this is God telling me to go and do firearms industry stuff. So I put on some applications, and eventually it was brown owls that picked me up. And in the process there, I got medically separated from the Marine Corps and ended up working at brown owls. And how long did you work there for? I worked at Brownells for about a year and a half. Uh, it was a pretty quick little turn there, but I was hired as a, a coordinator for training and for the law enforcement product division. Ended up uh, leaving as the director of government programs and services and doing a lot of video stuff for them and training. Wow. And then uh, I ran into the Magpul guys a bunch and they, they had some, some opportunities for me that sounded really appealing. And so I, I said goodbye to the guys at Brownells and jumped over to Colorado. Brownells guys, I, I still uh, very close with most of those guys that were there at the time, and Pete, mm-hmm. uh, still a good friend, that kind of thing. So, but uh, they were great. Uh, it was a great place to work, great people. Awesome. And I liked Iowa, but uh, yeah. Colorado and, and Magpul was next. Very nice. I'm going to take a quick break, real quick, talk about SB Tactical. Guys, if you have the SIG MPX or the SIG MCX, you should check out the SB Tacticals. MPX PSB brace. Man, that's a lot of letters. 
It has a three position adjustment on it, dual compatible with the SIG MPX as well as the MCX. Check it out at sb-tactical.com. Don't forget to use the code GUNFUNNY15 and that gets you 15% off. When you accepted the job at Magpul and you moved to Colorado, what was your initial position at Magpul? My initial position was I was hired to run Magpul Dynamics, uh, the training side of things. That was an ulterior motive. They were basically kind of bringing me over to feel me out on a lot of things, particularly in the product category side. And then before you knew it, I was director of product management. And then after that, director of product management and marketing. You know, kind of the, we were off to the races at that point. Mm-hmm. The first product that Magpul created, was it the magazine? Uh, it was the Magpul itself. That's a crazy story too. And we've, uh, you know, Richard Fitzpatrick, the founder, you mm-hmm. know, it's, uh, it's 1999. He cashes in his 401k to, to pay for the first mold for a Magpul. He'd carved a balsa wood model, you know, and, and the whole deal. And, you know, true, true American success story kind of deal. And you know, he did the, the beef jerky stand at the gun show uh, circuit for a long time, selling Magpuls and, and fulfilling mail order stuff before. You know, 2004 kind of took off and you know, kind of formalized it and made it more of an actual going concern with employees and the whole deal, achieves enough success to do that. And then since then, it's been certainly meteoricized. Yeah, it's crazy how fast you guys have come from one product to now you're just all over the place and you're on a ton of guns and it's really impressive. Magpul is one of the largest manufacturers of magazines, correct? We are the world's largest manufacturer of magazines and the world's largest firearms accessories manufacturer. Wow. So how, yeah, how many magazines do you think Magpul produces a year? I know the number exactly for pretty much any year that we want to talk about, but uh, we are privately held. And so we kind of keep that under our hat. It's a, it's a staggering number. I will say that probably believe me if I told you. Eh, I don't know. Well, I figure most gun owners have a ton of magazines. That's the first thing I do when I buy a gun is I have to have at least four magazines for every gun that I own. I can imagine. And then just recently with how there's 2 million new gun owners or 2 million guns that were sold. So I can imagine that it's a substantial number. You were in Colorado when they passed the mag capacity ban in, I think it was July 1st of 2013, correct? Yep. That's what went into effect, certainly. Okay. So that's when I actually just got into firearms. And I remember they were trying to get people to sign petitions and stuff and to fight it, but ultimately it lost and it's been the most ridiculous loss since. I'm still in Colorado and I can say that they are definitely not enforcing these laws. I have tons of students that come through my classroom. They're like, well, what if this gun has 17 round magazine? Honestly, I'm like, just buy it. I'm like the gun store right up the street is they're selling 30 round magazines and they're not even hiding it. Before, when this law passed, people were selling it as kits or they'd put rivets in the magazine so that you can only load it for 15 rounds. But it's one of those things where it's just not enforceable. Magazines, for the most part, majority of them out there, they're not serialized. There's no way of saying, hey, yeah, I bought it before July 1st of 2013 and I'm grandfathered into owning this versus, oh, you just bought it yesterday. There's no way to enforce it. And the cops know that. And I don't even think that to date that there's been anyone charged. And if they have, I think maybe there's two cases that I could think of, and it was an added charge to stuff that they were already doing. Needless to say, the law is ridiculous. But you guys basically, so because you were located in Colorado, you guys ended up making the move to Wyoming. 
we saw it as the only argument that we could pose that anybody was listening to. And we were going down to the Capitol and trying to fight this thing on the common sense kind of arguments and facts about what they were actually trying to do and the effect or the lack thereof that that would actually have. It didn't matter. It was falling on deaf ears. Mm -hmm. And so we, we kind of hatched the you know, there's there's economic impact that you're you're not considering as well. And oh, while yeah. you may not care about the Second Amendment issues, uh, all the Dems that were pushing this thing, we think we can get at them with the economic argument as much as anything, even though the Second Amendment issues shouldn't be what they're concerned about. Mm-hmm. But when we said, look, this is a lot of jobs, we're going to be forced and ideologically we'll move if you, if you pass those things. And it was the best chance we thought we had to stop it. Mm-hmm. And we certainly weren't going to go back on that word. It's, it's integrity is, is important. Absolutely. And we said what we were going to do and we did it. So uh, it took uh, some people. <laughs> it was funny. It was like we were catching a lot of heat after the law passed. And we're like, well, how, why haven't you moved? It's like, well, yeah, we're just, I'm going to call a U-Haul. And we'll just throw <laughs> 700 molds into a U-Haul truck and start headed down the road. It takes a couple months, but uh, we, we got her done. Wyoming has been a fantastic home. Uh, We've got over 300 people in the facility up there right now, cranking out products, distributing all over the country and world. And we still have what we said we wouldn't abandon Colorado. And we still have some design and engineering facility there. And we have the Texas office, which is what I work out of, although I travel quite a bit in normal times. Mm -hmm. Yeah. When that law passed, or was it before or after the law passed that you guys were handing out 30 round magazines, I believe at the Capitol? Yeah, so we did a bunch of things. We handed some stuff out of the Capitol. We did what we called the Boulder Airlift, which was basically prioritizing Colorado residents to get magazines. Because it was also 2013, so it was a crazy availability time or lack of availability time for uh, everything gun-related. That's mm-hmm. uh, something we've worked very hard to prevent ever happening again, regardless of where demand ends up. But at the time, we didn't want people that had a date where, like, no kidding, after this, you know, it's it, it's no longer verboten after this. So want to make sure that they had the opportunity to buy everything that they wanted. And then in the last rally before it went forward, the you know, Freedom Festival we did down there, we handed out uh, quite a bit of magazines. So. That's great. It's kind of like the ultimate F you. Okay, cool. You're going to pass this. Well, I'm going to make sure that every person in Colorado has a magazine before you ban it. Yeah, absolutely. So frustrating. And it's, it's proved they haven't been able to do anything with it. It certainly hasn't affected anything with respect to crime or safety or anything like that in a positive fashion. Mm-hmm. So it was a useless and silly, silly thing to do. So I know. And you would think at this point, I know that there's lots of people trying to get that law returned, but it's been unsuccessful. And I think, I don't know. It's just, it's crazy because I was born and raised in Colorado. I did spend mm-hmm. eight years in New York City for college, but Colorado has always been kind of a red state. And now, especially within the last couple of years, you see it rapidly changing. And it's kind of becoming sort of a, I hate to say it, but uh, more of a purple state, probably leaning more blue than than red at this point. But what do you think attributes to this? Well, I think it was a concerted and intentional effort. It was a, you know, kind of a, something out there called the plan, right? That uh, kind of shows the the idea of you know making it it's, there's an attractiveness to the Colorado lifestyle that is easy to bring folks in, and then you kind of incrementally work on through activism and some other things, changing state policies, and those state policies tend to attract more folks that are going to vote a certain way, and you gradually as you go through, and it, the, the the thing that turned it, if you look at it, uh, is you know, frustratingly I think in the in the 2012 elections, 
you know, they had marijuana on the, bottom, the ballot, yeah. which brought a bunch of folks to the polls that would vote Democrat that uh, would not have otherwise voted or been mo- as motivated to vote. And I'm, I'm of a libertarian bent pretty much through and through. So, mm-hmm. you know, hey, it's, uh, uh, everybody should be able to, victimless crimes are kind of mm-hmm. silly. Absolutely. Uh, I don't have a problem with that, but as long as it's, my kids don't have to deal with it in school, right? So that's the policy. <laughs> I, don't have to deal with there. But I think that brought a lot of people out that really tipped the scales in favor of the Democrats. And as soon as they had the balance of it, they ran with it. You know? Yeah. Yeah. It's been, uh, it's definitely been pretty, pretty crazy ever since. And ever since they legalized marijuana, it, it attracted a lot of people from around the country to move to Colorado. And I feel like that's when the economy really just kind of exploded. And yeah housing prices went up. Suddenly there wasn't enough apartments for people to live in and when you couldn't afford housing. It's insane. So I'm kind of glad that other states are legalizing it just so that people stop moving to Colorado because it's become so populated just in the last couple of years. And the older I get, the more I kind of just want to live middle of nowhere, be left alone. (laughs) So (laughs) having all these people here, having traffic is just something that when I left New York City, I felt like I was leaving that behind and now it's following me. Austin's not much better for similar reasons. Yeah, yeah. I can imagine. Well, in 2019, I noticed that you filed a lot of patents. Can you tell us kind of what those patents are? Oh, wow. That's playing stump the jump. That's a tough one with me. We have 800 and some patents. Oh, wow. uh, And we're we're constantly filing stuff every year with various folks on them, off them, whatever. First thing we do when we start any program is do an IP clearance to make sure that we're not infringing on anyone else's established IP or prior art. And, you know, we do respect IP. And then once we get into the program, we take a look for what we can patent and protect out of that program. And if there's utility there, especially, and and it makes sense to protect it, we do so. Mm -hmm. And so just in the course of doing business, we come up with a few things here or there. And that's where the IP portfolio comes from. You know, there's, we put a lot of time and effort into some of these things and the designers and engineers are extremely talented and we want to make sure that, uh, you know, we protect uh, the fact that we've invested that much in, in those things. Mm-hmm. I assume that some of these patents were your designs. Uh, I don't know about designs. I'm listed on a number of them, uh-huh. uh, right? So you'll see, and that's whenever you have a material contribution to that. So it's like, Hey, whether it's solving a problem or whether it's, Hey, it needs to do this, and this is a way we can do that. That gets one of the product managers as well onto it. Although designers are doing the bulk of the work, as far as I'm not sitting down at SolidWorks, I may share a napkin sketch. Is you know one of the things I'm, I have to send over this afternoon of an idea to solve a problem that we have. But by and large, the yeoman's work there. That's the design department. It's just every once in a while, I'll have a good idea. Gotcha. What would you say is one of or a few of the most popular accessories that Magpul makes? Magazines are certainly popular. A lot of the stock products are are ridiculously popular. The MBUS sites are extremely popular. The AR side, just because of the number of rifles out there, is certainly the the lion's share of a, a big segment. Mm-hmm. But we've got a lot of traction within the other segments with uh, you know the the bolt action stuff. The 1022 program has been fantastic. The bipods are you know kind of a runaway hit as well. Mm-hmm. And you guys came out with a bipod. What was it three years ago at Shot Show? That was pretty impressive. Yeah, it's like two, three years. Yeah, it's been on the thing. I can't, don't even remember at this point. It's been I know. forward. It's, it's like remembering the history is, <laughs> <laughs> but it's, I think it was about two years. Uh, and uh, so we've come out with, you know, we launched the bipod and three attachment systems, 17S, uh, Picatinny uh, clamp and M-Lock uh, bipod. And we followed up later with a pretty slick little quick detach that works with regular sling stud stuff. 
And we have some more stuff coming out. That family of bipod and shooting stability products in general is going to move forward because it's you know something that we use uh, mm-hmm. all the time. Uh, I'm a big uh, big hunter, whether it's backcountry or or some less uh, aspirational hunting even as well. Everything from the mundane to me driving five miles down the road and climbing up into a tree stand with a, with a stick bow to traipsing around 10,000 feet elevation on a horse. That's mm-hmm. uh, uh, I just love it. And in many of those aspects, stability is a big thing, whether it be for glassing or shooting and so on. Oh, yeah. We're looking at a lot of things in those, uh, in those categories. Have you guys seen an increase in long distance shooting become pretty popular in the last couple of years or has it remained kind of consistent? No, I think it continues to grow. It's, I think there's uh, one with, with access. I think because it's kind of a self-fulfilling prophecy, prophecy as more people get into it, the mm-hmm. facilities to be able to do it tend to appear or become more well-known. And, and then you have the access to do it, and that makes it easier. It was always a big frustration of mine for a lot of my military career moving around is there just wasn't a whole lot of places to go recreationally shoot long distances. Yeah. You could find a range that was 200 yards, maybe 300 here or there, but man, it was difficult to find a place to stretch your legs out, but now it's becoming more popular. There's more places to do it. That helps mm-hmm. as well as it's just, you know, we've come a long way uh, with developments and range finding technology and the accessibility of those technologies. I remember, geez, back when I was a teenager trying to hunt hillside to hillside with those little split view camera range finders where you like <laughs> twisted the dial until the images matched up on the top and bottom and it was somewhere within a hundred yards before you actually were, were looking. It's uh, pretty wow. frustrating. I'm kind of surprised I'm in Colorado Springs and the longest range that I have access to is a thousand yards and it's hit or miss when it's open. When I hit a mile, I had to go to Texas to do so. But you would think that being in Colorado and there's still quite a bit of land that somebody at this point would open a range because it has become so popular. And I think that Personally, I think that a lot of people, a lot of gun owners, they have their ARs and their shotguns and their handguns, but I think that they're getting a little bored and they kind of want to be challenged and long distance shooting definitely kind of takes you to that next level because not only do you have to be a good trigger puller, but you also have to consider all of these outside elements that are going to affect your hit. And that's what I really liked about it. But yeah, yeah, equal parts of discipline, math, and witchcraft in long range shooting. I know it's crazy. (laughs) Can you share any info on future products? Well, that one's kind of difficult. We generally try not to talk about a lot of things that are in the pipeline in very concrete terms, just Mm -hmm. until they're out there and we're ready to announce for a lot of reasons, but there's some line expansion stuff that you can reasonably expect us to continue doing. We'll continue to develop uh, different fitments for drum magazines as probably can be expected. There's some furniture things that folks may not have expected and some updates on existing product lines. There's actually something that's super crazy exciting that I cannot wait to talk about that I think is gonna be met very, very well. But it's one of those things that uh, you'll have to wait till SHOT Show for that one. Hmm, Okay, hopefully SHOT Show happens this year. I feel like well, there's going to be a show, whole nother COVID. I know. <laughs> oh, gosh. You got to love 2020. <laughs> uh, after the election, all this stuff will be, be fine. COVID right? Will be cured. Yeah. yeah, no kidding. Yeah, suddenly we got rid of the virus. Second week in November, everything's back to normal. <laughs> <laughs> you mentioned that you're coming out with furniture for something, for a line that people probably wouldn't think about. I'm curious, have you seen an increase in different platforms that people have become interested in? For me, I've noticed that people are definitely starting to get more interested in customized A case. Yeah. 
AK is one of those things where there's peaks and valleys of interest and, and stuff like that. 2016 was a phenomenal year for AK. Is like 2015, 2016, more mainstream, less mainstream, and, mm-hmm. and it's gone back and forth. And some, and to some extent, it deals with you know the availability and importation restrictions and stuff like that have hurt it or helped it along the way. And so you know the AK market goes up and down, but it's always there. Yeah. And it's one of the reasons I've been a big AK guy. I like AKs, uh, and it's just a platform that I've always been drawn to from the real simplicity of it. I'm more of an AR guy as far as what I'm going to grab on a day-to-day basis, but, yeah. but I like the AK a lot. I like roller delayed guns as well. But you might, you yeah. might see some of our developments in, in what platforms we support that, uh, that are reflected there. That's not there. That's It's not my whims by any stretch of the imagination. It's certainly what makes the most sense in popularity. And that's the great thing about the firearms industry is you don't ever have to get bored. I've always been a, a collector of skills. So I'm all over the place on what the heck I'm, I'm into from hobby wise, one to the other, mm-hmm. uh, whether it's, you know, cave diving to tying flies to whatever, climbing, blacksmithing, gunsmithing itself. But firearms is the one thing where there's such a diversity of uh, interesting things to tackle that I never get bored. Yeah, I agree with that. Sometimes I get to a point where I'm like, all right, I've put quite a few errors together. Yeah, you know, I'll take a break from that, move on to a different yep. platform. Recently, I got into archery. And it's funny because I think to myself, why do I always have to pick up expensive hobbies? Yeah. <laughs> and and why can't I just start with the basics? I always have to go all in with everything that yeah. I do. <laughs> Absolutely. That, that's that's exactly it. Uh, if I find something that's interesting, I go completely insane with it to yeah. a level where I've, I've reached a certain level of achievement where I can be, I guess, to some extent satisfied with mm-hmm. what I've gotten with it. And then it's like, okay, I've got that. Now, does it stay in my arsenal of things that I do on a regular basis or does it kind diminish in importance. I don't know. It's, yeah. I don't know how to say many things. But archery is always something that's, it, I've been hot and cold on archery and I've been hot on it for it the past, you know, I guess four or five years again and doing a lot of bow hunting. Yeah. I went to the store and I was looking at prices and I had no idea how expensive they were. And I'm just <laughs> like, wait, a stick, like an arrow is this much? <laughs> uh, it's, yep. it's crazy, but it's definitely, I don't know. And it's different than guns. I mean, it has some similarities and stuff, but I just like taking up new stuff all the time. Do you guys have any plans for the MP5 PMAG? Certainly something uh, that we, we look at. Obviously, magazines for any platform that we go into. The MP5 itself has some challenge in the available space because it's designed to be a very small steel magazine. Uh, so not a lot of wall thickness to play with. You know, there's other polymer mags for it, but we won't compromise the performance. And we think we have some ways to work around that so that you're going to see the level of performance that you expect from a magpul product. And we want to solve those problems. I don't want to make a, you know, a decent or pretty good MP5 magazine, right? Mm-hmm. Same way we don't want to do that with anything else. And obviously, you know, when we do AK magazines, we baseline that circle tens and holy steels and every. Yeah, 20 different variations to see that we're actually doing something that, that makes sense. Same way with MP5 magazines or any other platform that we take a look at is, you know, can we add something here? And uh, we're not going to release a product until we're sure that it's going to you know, meet that magical standard of reliability. Okay. And how has COVID affected production with Magpul? One, Wyoming is a fantastic place. Uh, they've been a fantastic partner in, in working through this whole thing. We have not had a lot of hiccups in there. Sure, we do social distancing within the facility and the whole thing to make sure that we're not endangering the folks that work there. And we every shift, people come in and we deep clean the whole place. And when we're getting it done, we're able to maintain some pretty impressive production numbers. Mm-hmm. So we're, I mean, we're cranking. We've done a lot of work from home stuff. Uh, I see I'm, you know, 
talking from home right now, but a lot of Teams meetings, uh, a lot of go to meeting, that sort of thing. And we've been able to do uh, just fine. Okay, that's good. Because I know a lot of companies, especially when they have a lot of outside importation, it's definitely kind of affected uh, production quite a bit. Yeah. And you guys probably, and I think everyone in the firearms industry has seen a huge uptick in just purchasing, even as an instructor. All the people that are buying new guns, now they're all coming my way to get to get instruction. And And I think I'm like two months booked out now. And it's just like, (laughs) I'm teaching four to five classes a week. And okay, I'm getting a little burnt out. And I think that the firearms industry just on all fronts, as far as guns, accessories, training, everyone is selling like crazy. It's a good time for bad reasons, right? Yeah. Um, and what the biggest thing to me that I see is along the lines of what you're talking about, I see a bunch of trainers talking about people reaching out to get trained. And that is the most encouraging thing to me that I think I've seen. Absolutely. A company is this as opposed to any of the previous kind of run-ups or whatever you want to call them or periods of hyperactivity is that there's an intense interest in getting trained. And that's, that's very encouraging. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I agree because there's just a gun's only going to do you so good if you don't know how to use it properly. You represent the 2A community really well. You work hard to preserve the Second Amendment. Are you working on any projects right now to help the cause? Yeah, there's always something, whether it's lobbying on a federal level, paying attention to what's going on at a state level, working with various different organizations. And actually, there's some other side stuff that we've been talking about doing that might be interesting, but we'll, we'll save that until it's ready to, to roll out if it makes sense and things do materialize. But the biggest thing is I try to, Magpul will always be a strong advocate, and I've, I've been fortunate enough to be allowed to use this platform to kind of further the cause of Second Amendment rights in, in the United States, uh, which aligns very much uh, with my predilections, I guess, to begin with. Mm -hmm. And so we'll do everything from lobbying to working with whatever group it is. Like, uh, you know, I'm on the NRA board and we've talked about that and the pros and cons there. And the the NRA is an organization that is strong because of the membership, right? There's Mm -hmm. 5 million members that are out there and it has, you know, an extremely strong, you know, there's a lot of those people do a lot of things that work and the whether it's the grassroots stuff that they do during election periods, legislative stuff, of course, they have access and placement that's been critical in a lot of areas, but they're not the only uh, kid on the block as far as that. And if you have any issues with any portion of what uh, anything that's going on in our area, or you like another group better, that's fine too. We support other groups and we work with other groups. Without what VCDL did in Virginia, there's no way uh, mm-hmm. that would have the stuff would have stopped. You know, there's lobbying stuff on the backside that also helped contribute to that, but without that show. Of support and the things they did in the town halls and things like that. So state organizations, GOA is a great grassroots mobilization effort. SAF, FPC uh, on the legal front and things like that. There's there's tons of ways out there to get involved. And the important thing is that you do that. Even on a, on a local level, you've got the you got the Moms Demand Roadshow that goes to you know showing up in Longmont, Colorado, trying to get you know gun bans in Longmont or things like that. But you know getting involved in a pro two a way on those community levels. That's as important right now as the national fight. It's just so hard with your attention divided in so many different directions that we need as many people as possible getting involved at various levels and doing it, whether it's writing a letter, whether it's you know joining an organization, whether it's uh, supporting an organization monetarily, or it's getting out and beating the pavement, or as far as media or just having discussions with your friends, neighbors, and, and, and folks online. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Would you say that gun owners have become sort of complacent and they think that the Second Amendment isn't going to be taken away? Or do you see more people taking action and realizing that it is in jeopardy? 
Uh, it, it ebbs and flows. It always does with based on perceived threat. And it's, it's one of those things where the frustrating thing is that it's tiring. Yeah. It really is tiring to constantly be under attack or uh, to have something this important taken away as a freedom within the United States. And mm -hmm. so it's a tiring slog to stay, you know, the ever vigilant kind of thing, but it just, sometimes I can understand it. It certainly can be consumed by it. And to some extent you have to be to be active in it, but, or at least always aware of it. But uh, we do, right now we're in a weird, weird spot. I would have said we were potentially in a period of somewhat semi-complacency because of perceiving a threat during the Trump administration, whether that's right or wrong. But bottom line is that now I think with the events of 2020, there's a lot of folks that have realized that maybe these gun folks are on to something. Mm -hmm. We've seen you know, record-breaking mixed checks every month. Yeah. And the other side of that that we haven't seen previously is from some of the NSSF research, we've seen that 40% or even more of those gun purchases this year are new firearms owners. Mm -hmm. um, to your point on the folks getting training and, and folks that have changed their mind about the idea of owning a firearm being a good idea. Mm -hmm. That is encouraging to me. I think it, the events that we've seen here have certainly helped to convince some folks that we're onto something with the Second Amendment thing. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. All right. For people who want to find you or Magpul online, where can they? www.magpool.com as uh, the website with uh, all the information. We have a new comms page uh, as well. It's a lot of stuff that we're up to, whether it's uh, activities we're doing, uh, interest things that we have with you know partners within the industry, or just random bits of information. Our, our extended minutes uh, series has been uh, pretty wildly popular, just really dense information that can be useful and takes uh, less than two minutes to watch. So all those things are there as well as everything we have in new products, super deep dive on a lot of the different you know, technical specifications and, and details on what we've got going on and news of what we're up to. That's there. We're also, of course, on uh, Facebook and uh, Magpul and Magpul Core, Instagram. And I think that's about it. Okay. Awesome. Well, guys, go ahead and give them a follow. And moving forward, we're going to talk about IWI real quick. So the Galil Ace, uh, it incorporates recent upgrades, including left side operation of the charging handle, LR-SR25 magazine compatibility, full length two-piece Picatinny style top rail, and tri-rail forums. That's fully adjustable iron sights and a side folding adjustable telescoping buttstock with a two-position removable comb on all Galil models. So the rifle is available in 7.62 NATO and 7.62 by 39. Pistol is available in those two calibers as well as a 5.56. And if you guys already have a Galil, you should check out the accessories that's available on IWI's website, including the M-Lock forend. And don't forget that if you find accessories that you like, you can get 15% off by using the code GUNFUNNY15. And that is at IWI.us. Now it's time for Political AF. Politics. What is going on in the world today? It's Supreme Court decides not to hear big gun rights cases. So the U.S. Supreme Court on Monday denied petitions for appeals of all 10 gun cases uh, that's docketed. Uh, at the time, the Supreme Court has not taken up a Second Amendment case in nearly a decade. The case rejected by the court involved whether laws banning interstate handgun sales in some cases violate the Second Amendment, whether there is a constitutional right to carry a firearm outside the home for self-defense, 
If Illinois and Massachusetts can ban assault rifles in large capacity magazines, whether a state can limit handgun permits to people who demonstrate a specific need for self-defense. This comes after a more recent refusal to hear gun rights challenges by the Supreme Court, including the challenge of the bump stock ban by ATF, arbitrarily rewriting legal definitions at the direction of the president sidestepping the legislative process. It just goes to show that even though we have so-called conservative judges, the Second Amendment rarely gets the consideration that it deserves, especially considering how essential it is to our rights and with everything going on right now. It just kind of makes, again, the law very unjust. Do you have anything to add to that, Dwayne? Yeah, absolutely. This is it's a big frustration. It's been a big frustration. We're seeing, so we've got like 190-some judicial appointments uh, in this. And so we, we should see that pay dividends in some of the circuit courts. The ninth is actually almost dead split at this point, which is good because that Benitez case there in California that, uh, is coming up on, on the mag bands. That's been heard and presumably by a more favorable panel than it would be seen, have been seen you know, four years ago. So those things are good. We've had some decent judicial appointments to the Supreme Court. The problem that we run into is you know, we're still with a 5-4 court. It's sort of a 5-4 court. Roberts is a wild card. He's certainly a wild card on guns. Mm-hmm. This is Litvak's opinion based on you know what I know and who I've talked to. Maybe I've got bad info, but my, that's my opinion. And what I've heard is that Roberts being a wild card has affected a lot of the uh, granting uh, cert on, on these firearms cases. That don't some of the justices that are more on the conservative side don't necessarily want to take the chance of uh, putting out bad precedent because Roberts is siding theoretically with the liberals, mm-hmm. and that's the frustrating thing. Is like for crying out loud, these are fundamental rights. There's not even that much of a question if you interpret the Constitution in any way, shape, or form as written. These are not hard questions in my mind. But we've turned to judicial or legislating from the bench and many fashions, and there's an agenda there with certain justices as well as with certain judges. And those are the realities of the situation. Do I think they should have passed on this? Certainly not. I get it if Roberts isn't with you on a full AWB and you, and you want to hold out for a solid precedent. And maybe you end up with a, with a true 5-4 court with then Roberts being a swing for 6-3. I get that, that that makes sense on maybe the AWBs from a strategic uh, standpoint. But for crying out loud, whether you can limit handgun permits to people who demonstrate a specific need for self-defense mm-hmm. over the Constitution as written, that's not hard. Mm-hmm. Uh, interstate handgun sales, and that's some issues. The rights to carry a firearm outside the home, I thought that one was going to be a slam dunk to be heard because my understanding was Robert you, you know, was on the right side of that one. Yeah. So this, the whole thing is frustrating to me that they haven't seen any of them. Mm-hmm even if it is that they're worried about Roberts, but that's in my two cents. Yeah, no, I completely agree. Okay, Sharps Bros. So if you guys are looking for an upper receiver to match your jack, your overthrow, or any of the other Sharps Bros lowers, and you want a nice billet upper, or if you want a nice billet upper for a different lower, check out the SBUR03. It is the upper receiver. It matches Sharps Bros lowers and forends perfectly, as well as the lines. It also comes in anodized black with the forward assist kit and dust cover installed, and it's on sale now for $198.83. And you can find that at sharpsbros.com. Q&A. There's no such thing as a stupid question. Just kidding. Visit gunfunny.com forward slash contact to submit yours. All right, today's question. I was wondering what you do to help people who are cross-eyed dominant. 
I have been trying all kinds of things to not shoot with my weak eye. Any advice? I'm right-handed. I want to look with my left and I cannot close my right eye to shoot. I can only close my left. When I shoot with both eyes open, I see triple. When I use a red dot, I can actually see through the window clearly with eyes open. Believe it or not, I've actually had a lot of students can only close one eye and typically just so happens that they can't close their non-dominant eye which definitely prevents accuracy. Typically, I do just recommend that students just shoot with both eyes open at that point. But if he sees triple, this is going to sound kind of dumb, but because naturally at this point in my firearms career, I'm trying to just shoot with both eyes open and just kind of naturally use my dominant eye, which is way easier said than done. Because when you first learn, you're you're learning to use your dominant eye and close your non-dominant. But I would almost say in order to make your dominant eye a little bit stronger, I wonder if you could just put some tape on your glasses on the non-dominant side and just maybe kind of strengthen the dominant eye. I don't know. Does that make sense to you, Dwayne? Absolutely. That's uh, exactly what I would kind of say. One, I'd make sure 100% that your dominant eye is your dominant eye. Yeah. I do also encourage because if you're if it's if it's fighting for the other eye to come into it, there's different aspects of it. There's are there are people with not very strong dominance. That's, that's absolutely a factor. And what you're talking about does generally work. Put some blinders on uh, one eye. Just a piece of electrical tape is is the ticket. And then you'll eventually get used to kind of forcing that other eye to do it with both eyes open because mm-hmm. once again, I do strongly encourage as well shooting with both eyes open. There's a lot of situational awareness there. Mm-hmm. If you, uh, if you can. Yeah, that's what I would recommend. Otherwise, if you can see a red dot really clearly, and they have red dots for handguns now as well as obviously long guns. But I would just say if that doesn't work, then maybe use a gun that's milled out for an optic. All right, polymer 80. So right now the kits are still out of stock. Everyone pretty much just bought everything that they possibly can, but I was looking on their website. They still have complete P80s for only $550. You can find those at polymer80.com. Don't forget to use the code GUNFUNNY and that gets you 15% off. Tactic Talk. Discussing popular guns and gear. Love it? Hate it? Find out now. All right, so today we're going to talk about the dry fire mag. And I always tell students that they should definitely practice dry firing if they can't make it out to the range. And it's one of those things where if you're not constantly shooting, your skills definitely diminish. Dry firing is a great option, especially if you're trying to train yourself out of anticipating that shot every time that you fire the gun. A lot of people, they know that there's going to be some recoil, so they counteract it by pulling down as they're pulling the trigger. And you're going to have to train yourself out of that. What can be kind of a pain sometimes is, let's say I take an empty casing or something and I put it on top of the slide and then I have the student pull the trigger and then you have to reset the trigger. So you have to rack that slide back, let it go forward and then put the casing on top again. And it's just one of those things where it's not as ideal. It's not like shooting live ammo where the trigger automatically resets. So The dry fire mag, what's great about this is you don't have to constantly keep pulling back that slide to reset the trigger every time that you dry fire it, but kind of mimics as if there was live ammo in the gun. Obviously there's not and nothing comes out when you pull the trigger, but it sort of simulates that reset. You can also add a Mantis X 
to it. In fact, I think that they have one, they released a version, the Dry Fire Mag that comes with the Mantis X included. So that's also a really great way to work on your skills, especially again at home. Unfortunately, the Dry Fire Mag is only available to standard Glocks and Smith & Wesson M&Ps. They are working on a Springfield XD line. I'm not sure when that's going to come out, but they are working on one. And who knows, maybe they'll consider carry guns like the P365, Springfield Hellcat, stuff like that. But I definitely, I would get one of these. I don't own one of them, but I would definitely get one of these, if nothing else, just for my students to practice with. Do you have any experience with this, Dwayne? I don't have uh, that particular product, but I'm a big fan of dry fire aids in general. I have a you know a cert pistol sitting by my desk constantly. Mm-hmm. The reset provided by that is uh, kind of the way I've done it. But with whatever platform, lots and lots of dry fire, dry practice and, and manipulations practice, whether it be reloads, draws, presentations, all that stuff. You make your money in dry practice for sure. And then you kind of confirm and grain and incorporate recoil on the range. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, absolutely big fan of anything that makes dry fire more effective and easier. Mm-hmm, definitely. Yeah, I have quite a few of the cert pistols as well. I like this, though, because you can use your actual gun yep. that you're training with. So that's kind of cool. Yep. I don't know what the price is on it, but hopefully I would think that it's fairly affordable. Moving forward, Trigger Brew. I got to say, actually, Trigger Brew lately is basically keeping me on my feet because I've been working about seven days a week. And if it wasn't for Trigger Brew, I don't think that I would be functioning. I used to just have coffee in the morning. Now I definitely have coffee towards the afternoon. Maybe I'm getting older. I don't know. (laughs) But I love the taste of Trigger Brew. I highly recommend it. Head on over to TriggerBrew.com. Don't forget to use the code GUNFUNNY and that gets you 20% off. Stupid. Funny. Cool. Interesting. Awesome. As AF. A California man is facing felony charges for violating the state's law on high-capacity magazines. During a parole search, they found a 15-round magazine, which is considered high-capacity in California. It shouldn't exceed, I believe, 10 rounds. And basically, I think it was since 2000, California, it's been illegal to manufacture, import, sell, give, lend, or buy any magazine that exceeds 10 rounds. But on March 29th, if you guys remember, 2019, a U.S. District Court judge ruled that the ban was unconstitutional and shouldn't be enforced. That launched a buying spree across California with gun owners snatching up large capacity magazines for a week until an injunction was issued due to the state appeal of the ruling. Despite the fact that this guy said that he bought it during Freedom Week, He is still being charged because he cannot prove that he bought it during that week. Again, this is just one of those things where it's just, it's ridiculous. California being California. I know. Yeah. So there was an entire week where people were able to buy all the magazines, drums, whatever. And now that people own them, if you get caught with them and you don't have proof that you bought it within that week you can now be charged for it. And it's just, I don't know, it's one of those things where don't they have better things to do than to waste taxpayer dollars on charging people that are otherwise law-abiding citizens? And they probably still are. I'm sure that they bought it within the Freedom Week because it's pretty hard to get one in California otherwise. And so it's just, once again, kind of making law-abiding citizens criminals. 
Yeah, so there's been similar uh, dynamics to some extent in California as there have been in, in Colorado, but not necessarily the same. There's been numerous folks that sold rebuild kits into California for many, many years with the idea of you know, a disassembled magazine being not a magazine under, under the California statute. Mm -hmm. You know, they never come off of kind of the 1994 federal ban and they put it in the state law during the middle of that and sold it and didn't expire in 2004. The Benitez ruling was amazing in that he very, very originalist and strict scrutiny interpretation and 86 pages or so of basic, basic scathing rebuke of the idea of banning magazine capacity. And then, so that, that kicks off, not only did he strike down the new law in California, which would eliminate grandfathering, he struck down basically the, the pre-existing prohibition at all. And so the whole thing was, was game on at mm -hmm. that point within the state of California. And lots of folks shipped, bought, and whatever mags into the state of California. Now, the other interesting side of that is that allows manufacture uh, as well. And, you know, all the stuff that was illegal is legal. So even guys that have had a rebuild kit sitting around, if they pop that magazine together during Freedom Week, that's covered, mm -hmm. uh, and, you know, presumably by the way that the whole thing was written. Now, the interesting part, and everybody's like, ah, oh, they stayed the decision and shut the thing down. So... Uh, Benitez stayed his own decision, which was an interesting move in that if the stay, so if he says, no, I'm not going to stay this, and it goes to the Ninth Circuit for a stay, the stay then would be appealed to the Ninth Circuit to get the stay. If the Ninth Circuit stayed it, they could say, no, we, that we're, we're staying the decision, and that stay is retroactive to the date of the original decision, so that all those people that had brought magazines into the state would now not be in compliance. By staying his own decision, he exempted every magazine that made it into the state or was manufactured in the state during that week. And so by staying his own decision, he was allowed to exempt those magazines, which wouldn't have occurred most likely if it went to the ninth. So mm -hmm. it was a pretty smart move, actually. So it basically resets the date of what is a pre-banned magazine in California to whatever, April 4th or whatever that Friday was mm -hmm. after the, the decision. It was, you know, he made the decision on a Friday, stated on the next Friday. So now pretty much it's, I don't know how the state of California could possibly prove that you didn't manufacture, assemble, or purchase the magazine during that exemption period. I mean, maybe they could uh, find some way, but it's a hard road to hoe. And the burden of proof is on the state, not on the guy that bought it. So sure, they can charge him unless he can prove that uh, he didn't buy it during Freedom Week. But uh, I have a hard time believing that even in California, they can achieve a conviction. Yeah, definitely. Benitez has been just a huge help for California. And even with the whole ammo thing, which didn't last a full week, it was, I don't know, what, three or four days. Yep. But people could get ammo shipped directly to their house as opposed to at the gun stores which I felt bad because I think once it went into effect, if it didn't ship at that point, I don't think that they could have received it at their house. But Yeah, that's the whole thing's a mess. The crazy thing is that it's all completely antithetical to the, the Constitution in the I know. first place. I know. And it's just, it's, it's been allowed to exist due to a lack of judicial spying, I think. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, it's definitely ridiculous. Triarc Systems. In addition to their complete ARs, you can also buy Triarc components for your own builds. They have amazing barrels as well as true mil-spec BCGs. They also have an enhanced BCG made from 9310 steel, which is 8% stronger than the mil-spec standard carpenter 158 steel. And you can get these in either black nitride or NP3 coating. Don't forget to use the code AVA, that's CAPS AVA, for 5% off. And that is at triarchsystems.com. 
And now it's time for iTunes reviews. I believe my editor said this is the last iTunes review. So guys, if you haven't left a review, please do so. And you have a chance to win a prize pack. First review is Elvin Dumas. Five stars. Awesome AF. Ava has dropped some cargo since my last review. So I felt an an updated review is justified. This is by far my favorite podcast. I look forward to listening every week. The content stays relative throughout the entire podcast and doesn't become random conversations or background noise. The guests are always awesome and give great insight to their product and company. Just like the guests on the episode, this review is being read. You are also awesome. I highly recommend becoming a Patreon. It not only supports the podcast, but it's also a great group of people. Keep up the great work, Ava. Ah, Elvin, thank you. Second is Philosopher 2003, five stars, best podcast. It is great to see you being such a great role model for young women. My little girl thinks you're amazing. Ah, thank you. All right, Dwayne, I want you to pick a winner out of these two. That's a tough one. I know. That's what I was thinking. Usually it's pretty apparent. You're like, okay, well, you didn't really try that hard, but you know what? I'm not going to have you pick, Dwayne. I'm going to send out a prize pack for both because I think those are both really nice reviews. So thank you. You saved me from the horns of a dilemma. I was actually reaching for a dice. (laughs) Or for a quarter. All right, now it's time to wrap up. So guys, you can find me at gunfunny.com. There's links to everything, social media, where the show's posted, stuff like that. If you want to support the show, consider becoming a Patreon. You get access to our Patreon-only Facebook group, which is a lot of fun. Also, Blown Deadline gives away a $300 gift certificate every month to a lucky Patreon. And if you're a $5 plus Patreon, after three months, you will get a Patreon-only patch, which will never be for sale. I also want to thank the $25 Patreons who are Corbin Bonafide, Iraq Veteran, 8888, Ryan Morrison, Elliot and Mike Pappas, Joe Lyons, Justin Paulson, Jason Anderson, Joshua Hamp, Sportsman's Guide, and Daniel Treadwell. And King of the Patreon is still Jon Snow. He wants me to say that it's nice to have the last laugh. However, if you laughed at Operator Tickles, it will indeed be your last laugh. (laughs) And I'm kind of laughing because, Dwayne, I'm friends with you on Facebook, right? Mm Mm-hmm. So yesterday I just got one of those skylights and it puts stars and stuff on your ceiling. It's super cool. Totally Mm -hmm. worth the 50 bucks. But my dog has this thing for reflections. Sometimes I'll look at her and she's just biting at air or on the floor, biting it. And I'm just, okay, what is she doing? And it's just so silly. But anyways, I knew that this was going to get her all startled. And so sure enough, I put it on and she's barking up at the ceiling (laughs) at the stars And somebody wrote, I don't know, they posted a meme like I should kick my dog or something, which obviously I got a little mad about. And then everyone got on this guy and they were like, yeah, you don't know. Operator Tickles is going to get you for that. You don't know what you just messed with. (laughs) And so it was kind of funny. All right. Well, Dwayne, I really want to thank you so much for spending the last hour with me. I really appreciate what you're doing you're doing an awesome job. And Magpul also is just always creating really great affordable products, which is always appreciated. Can you just remind people one last time where they can find Magpul online? Magpul.com. And then uh, Magpul Industries on uh, Facebook, Magpul Core on Facebook, and then Magpul Industries and Core on uh, Instagram as well. Okay. Awesome. Well, on that note, we are out of here. Want to send feedback? Tell us about a company or anything else. 
Go to gunfunny.com forward slash contact.